Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Builders Build podcast. I'm your host, George Boo. And today I'm super excited to show you a super awesome guest who has the experience of building innovation in a traditional industry and also have seen it all on a founder's perspective. Today's guest is Vance Roche, who's the co-founder and CEO of Overflow. So Vance, thank you so much for coming on to the show today. Hey, thanks so much, George. It's great to be here. Okay, awesome. For our audiences who doesn't know Overflow yet, can you give us a quick rundown about what is Overflow and why you started it? Yeah, Overflow is an online donation platform that empowers nonprofits, churches, charities, and corporations to inspire their donors or employees to give not just in cash, but in non-cash, non-traditional ways like stocks, crypto, ETFs, even things like vehicles, real estate, land, collectibles. Basically, what we're building is the Amazon for giving. So the same way that you can buy anything through Amazon, you can now give anything through Overflow. Our mission is to inspire the world to give. So we believe this infrastructure is going to really be able to do that. Yeah, and I think Vince, we're in a very special like world today, right? Like we have so many like social mm -hmm. challenges and everything like the Russia-Ukraine war and so many social right. issues happening. I think a platform like yours is exactly like what the world needs. Tell us more about who are your customers and who do you interact with on a day-to-day -day basis for Overflow? Yeah, so the way I explain it is we're B to C. Okay, so we're B to B in the standpoint that currently today our main focus is to sell into the nonprofit organizations, the church organizations, and the corporations. We sell them a SaaS tool, which includes a button essentially that they put on their website. So think like PayPal, right? You see PayPal on certain sites for merchants but also for nonprofit websites to be able to collect traditional ACH debit credit donation transactions, right? So we're very similar to that. We can either be a complimentary button or completely replace something like a PayPal button so that now any donor that goes to your give page or your donate page can not just give in the form of cash, but give stock, crypto, and other non-cash assets. So we sell a SaaS platform and a button to those organizations. But if you think about it, those organizations are now exposing overflow to all of their donors and supporters that go to that page. Or they might be exposing overflow through email campaigns, through in-person gatherings and galas and things like that. And so once that donor actually uses overflow, they now have experience with giving potentially in new ways. Maybe they've never donated appreciated stock before or some of their Dogecoin <laughs> before or Bitcoin or Ethereum. But after experiencing the magic of that, then they not only give to that organization, but they might want to give to other organizations. They can now, as an Overflow user, give to other organizations in unique ways, really creating a flywheel effect. And so that's why we explain ourselves as B to B to C, because that consumer is that end donor that we really are excited about to empower and to inspire to give generously. That's very interesting, Vance. And I think one very interesting thing you guys are doing, and I think one thing you can definitely speak as the founder to many more founders is that the fact that you guys are innovating in a rather traditional industry. So like, for example, yeah. donations, churches and organizations, NGOs, like those are traditional organizations and trying to sell them or let them know something like Overflow exists must be a really unique experience. Um, so Vance, can you tell me more about, tell us more about what is the, what's the process of approaching like a church or other customers of yours yeah. and explaining them that? What was their first reaction? 
<laughs> it's interesting because when you think about churches and nonprofits, the first thing that comes to mind is probably not innovation. Yeah, um, exactly. And actually for investors, maybe the first thing that comes to mind is maybe a small market or a very slow moving market. Interestingly enough, the 501c3 space, the wider nonprofit space, is the number three industry in terms of job creation. It creates more jobs than construction. Really interesting. So it's actually a massive market, but I think some of the assumptions that it is slow moving and not the most innovative is true. And that's why we're really excited about it because that perception and large in part that reality means that it's a wide open field to create a brand that ushers in and pioneers innovation into the space. And so mm -hmm. that's what we're really excited about. What that means though, is that we have to be really good at marketing, messaging, positioning. We have to be really aligned with the customer on making sure that we're directly providing value as soon as possible, right? Because we need a wedge into building trust really fast to be a venture backable startup that can continue to reinvest these type of investments into the space at large to continue to bring innovation on a consistent basis. And so I would say more than other industries, we have an onus for our company to be customer obsessed, to understand how can we provide painkillers, not just vitamins to the decision makers and the gatekeepers to the budget, so that we can have a shot to expand more services and more products and more features and provide more and more value over time to these customers that are giving us an opportunity to do so. Yeah, I'm so glad Vance, that you mentioned about SaaS, right? Like that the Overflow is essentially a SaaS company. And I think selling a innovative solution in as a SaaS company to traditional industries might be a challenge as, for example, if Overflow is the pay as you go, or when we show results, then you pay us it will be a different story. So how's that been like for you guys? Like, how do you solve that challenge of convincing your customers when you're a SaaS solution? Yeah, we actually started with the model of pay as you go. We okay. actually started with kind of a try before you buy type of model. And we realized that for our business, it wasn't the right model. The reason being is because we were getting a ton of signups because the value proposition is very compelling that we can unlock net new generosity and unlock stock and crypto donations that otherwise you wouldn't have had. But if there's no skin in the game, if they're not paying anything up front, it's actually not on the priority list of rolling out effectively to their donor base. And so we realized we'd rather at the start grow a little bit slower, but truly get to the people that believe in the value proposition enough to pay for it up front so they have skin in the game to roll it out in a way that gives it a shot to be effective. Mm -hmm. And so when we made that shift to a pure SaaS model paid up front model, we started seeing our engagement metrics, our success metrics go way, way up because all of a sudden we were on the priority list of the buyer and the executors because they know they paid something, it cost them something. So let's focus on making sure that this can work. Right. So that shift in business model actually ended up contributing to better outcomes for our customers. And so that's why the SaaS model specifically paid up front has been very powerful for our business. And I think for any founders who are doing a pay as you go model, I think Vance, what you just shared has been pretty compelling. I think personally, I have the same experience 
when is when the, your customer pays a SaaS fee, they're more likely to use you early on as they figure out like, okay, I'm paying, so I might as well, when you're a pay as you go, people just kind of put you in a back burner and not remember yeah. it. So Vance, I do want to talk more about the story of you starting Overflow or as, or as my personal assumption of how you started Overflow, because I think you had a really interesting experience as being like starting, being a found co-founder of a church and also the yeah. main pastor. So I think you were the co-founder executive pastor at the Vive Church. So tell mm -hmm. us more about your church, if you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So alongside my tech career, so I started my career at Google. So I've been in tech for the last decade, but simultaneous to that, my wife and I, like you mentioned, co-founded a church with an Australian couple who are the lead pastors back in 2012. So most people listening to this probably don't know what that means. Basically what it meant was that we wanted to start a community to share our faith, and we started with seven people in a living room that's called church planning. <laughs> and so it's kind of like a startup company, right? You kind of started in a garage with a couple of people. So we started with seven people in a living room. That was my wife and I, our lead pastors, Adam and Kara, and then their three kids. Basically, that was the seven people. So that was 2012. So about a decade later, we're at 4,000 members now. Wow. Across 10 physical locations. And we just bought our first building. We bought our first building. It was $32 million and it's situated right across the street from Google. So it's really accelerated. And so why this is relevant to my founder story for Overflow is because that's actually where the idea came from, is my own church. Number one, I've been inspired by the generosity of our church, people being willing to sacrifice finances, be generous with their income, to be able to contribute towards a community that cares for and serves for the people in there. So I've been inspired by that concept and that principle that we've aspired to live by. There's actually this biblical verse, Proverbs 11, 24, it says, the world of the generous gets larger and larger. It's this first principle truth that we've been really compelled by. But in saying that, fast forward to 2019, many people at our church by this point, we're gonna have about a thousand active recurring donors. People started come out, coming up to me saying, hey Vance, I would love to donate stock to the church, my Facebook RSUs, Google, Facebook, stock, employee options, things like that. At the time, I didn't know how to do it. And so that was the inception of Overflow. I was basically like, okay, if I don't know how to take in this stock, let me try to figure out why it's not so known or why it's not so easy. So I did my research. I actually opened up a brokerage account through Fidelity, hmm. thinking that would make it super easy. I give the account information to these people that wanted to donate stock, and I was met with no activity to our brokerage account. I gave them the account information, but nobody was actually taking action. So yeah. I wondered, okay, what's happening? So I asked one of the people that wanted to give stock, hey, do you have all the information you need? And he said something that I'll never forget. He goes, Vance, I'm going to do it. It's just that the information you gave me, I gave to my Charles Schwab broker, and they told me to download a form, physically fill it out, and fax it in. I just haven't had a chance to do it. <laughs> And so that's when I came up with the idea of overflow. I was like, okay, if you tell a millennial to fax in anything, it's definitely not going to happen. <laughs> so if I want them to actually donate this stock, I need to make it completely online, super frictionless, and as easy as Venmo. Mm -hmm. And so that's when we created overflow. November 2019 is when I launched the platform that I built in October 2019 to my church. And after I emailed a thousand active recurring donors about this new platform where they can donate stock now completely online, 32 people responded and we raised $1.1 million in three days. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, strong yeah. traction. And so I was like, okay, 
if this can work for us, I think it can work for many other churches and nonprofits and universities across the nation. I really love the idea and I really love the story events of how you started. Like you, you experienced a problem yourself and also like you, you have the same problem at the church and you tested that with your MVP and it raised 1.3 million in just about three days. So that, yeah, that was yeah, amazing. Exactly. It gave you so very so strong convictions. What is the story from there? Like after you raised 1.3 million, like when do you decide that you're going to go full-time for overflow and were you full-time at a time you're doing your first fundraise? Yeah, so I decided to kind of make the leap around that time that I was kind of beta testing, I guess, to our church. And especially because of that validation of people actually using it and finding value in it. And obviously the church winning big through it, I ended up going kind of on the founder journey of, okay, how do I take this from a product to a company? So I needed some elements. I needed more resources, funding. So I joined a fellowship called OnDeck, at the time based in the San Francisco Bay Area, which was a community of founders and entrepreneurs that were helping each other for things like recruiting and funding and the fundraising process, and also connected me to certain funds that specifically focus on the pre-seed round of fundraising. And basically early... 2020, I started the process of fundraising for the company. At the start, it was very difficult. I did 50 pitches and the first 50 pitches were all no's. So that was pretty discouraging. <laughs> uh, but from there, I started using that rejection as insight, refining how I articulated the company. And from there, started seeing some early traction. A couple really great firms like Village Global and then eventually this seed stage firm, Uncourt Capital, ended up underwriting me in the very early days. And that just provided a lot more momentum for more and more people hearing about it, believing in it, and wanting to be a part of the journey. So to date, we've raised $13.5 in venture funding, and we have just under 40 employees building out the future of generosity. Yeah, that's super awesome. And I love your story, Vance, about how you pitched to 50 investors and they all said no. I think that's so important yeah. for other founders listening in to understand that it's it's okay if investors say no. I've heard so many founders got scared when they have two sure. no's or five no's. I said founders like Vance, right? And other founders, they've heard 50 no's, 100 no's sometimes even. So I yeah. think that's super, super important. And thanks, thanks so much, Vance, for sharing that. I do want to talk more about the topic of spirituality and okay. believing in something because I think it's such an important topic because in Silicon Valley, I think a lot of people are atheist, I'm sure, Vance. Mm. And I think that has created some problems. In my personal opinion, people are not finding joy. People are not finding yeah. joy in work. People are not finding joy in life. People are becoming more materialistic. And I think just from your experience, how has your journey of spirituality helped you? And what was your spirit journey of spirituality like in the first place? Please share with us. Yeah, it's interesting where you identify as the reality is you serve a God. Right. You serve a God. You maybe serve a God of the Bible. That's who I serve. Maybe you serve a God in a different religion right? Like Muhammad or Buddha, and you subscribe to their teachings. Or if you're in the Silicon Valley, like you mentioned, maybe you serve the God of achievement <laughs> or sort of the, serve a God of technology or serve the God of startup entrepreneurship. Everybody's worshiping something. And so I think people have to realize that is that whatever you categorize yourself, you are actually submitting and surrendering to a higher truth of what life is all about. I grew up in the church. 
And so for me, church growing up was more of a social construct. I only went to church because my parents went to church. Mm -hmm. And so, and that's where a lot of my childhood friends ended up coming from because we were there every Sunday, every Tuesday night for prayer, every Wednesday night. And so through osmosis, maybe I was like kind of hearing about these first principle truths from the Bible being talked about. But largely for me personally, it was more of just a social club. And so when I went to college and at the University of Washington, a very liberal school, I ended up realizing, oh, I live in the dorms. I'm kind of living on my own with my friends. Nobody's telling me I have to go to church. So I'm not going to go. I can play basketball on Sunday mornings. That's like way better. And so that's what I ended up doing and realizing that through that journey of disconnecting from that community and disconnecting from church, even though like in the back of my mind, I was subscribing that, oh, there probably is a God. I wasn't actually living the lifestyle of believing and living out the principles of the Bible, right? Mm -hmm. And making that active in my life. And so what was I making active in my life? I don't know, just whatever professors taught me mm -hmm. or whatever my friends were kind of teaching me through being in community with them or whatever I just read or saw in the media of what success is. And for me, success was getting a degree and hopefully making six figures out of college so that I could buy my mom a house. I don't know, immigrant kids, mm -hmm. like we just want to buy our mom a house or something. And that's kind of what I was worshiping. And it came to a point where I was studying abroad in Italy my junior year of college and literally so fun, meeting so many friends, going out every single night, getting all this exposure, all these new experiences. And I still think about it as a very fond time, but after kind of the repetition of living like a life of just like what everybody views as fun, like the club every single night, partying every single day, just being part of that lifestyle, it just became such a repetition that I, was, I woke up one morning on the side of a street, kind of getting sober a little bit. And I remember it was like 4 a.m., and I just had this sense of my spirit that, and I believe it was God actually nudging me, the sense of my spirit that there's something more to life than just this. And that's when I decided, you know what? I'm going to actually go to church, something that I grew grown up doing for myself. So when I get back to Seattle, I'm going to Google church by the University of Washington. And I'm just going to go to church, but this time genuinely seeking what this life is all about for myself. And that was my junior year in college and I've never turned back since. I found a lot of truths to be true and helpful to my life and pretty transformative in the way that I think about things. I, I found my wife in church as well, that doesn't hurt. <laughs> and that I've been married to for 10 years and have four kids with. But that's been my journey to faith and it being an integral part of my life today. Yeah, that's a very inspiring story, Vance. And I think a few episodes ago on the podcast, I think someone said the same thing. Basically, having spirituality gives you more principles that you can hold on your day to day. Do you feel like that has helped you with your own work or life principles? And has that helped you on your journey? Yeah, I think the principles were the allure in the beginning and still are important today in terms of understanding first principle truths that I learned from the Bible and incorporating into my life because I believe that leads to a fill 
a full and fulfilling life. But the revelation moment for me is what the Bible coins as the gospel, which simply means the good news of Jesus, essentially, that there is a creator of the universe that sent down his son to live on this planet so he could live a life that could be relatable to us. And he lived a life that we couldn't, and he died a death that the Bible says ended up resurrecting from the dead, meaning that it was proof positive that, you know, him saying that he is God is actually true, right? Because nobody's ever done that <laughs> ever mm -hmm. in the past or till this day. And because that is true, he's now made a bridge to be able to connect with God and to relate with God and to have a relationship with God here on earth. And so understanding that message is so powerful and practical if you choose to believe it and you choose to subscribe to it where, wait, so you're saying like in all the times where I feel emptiness, you're saying all the times I hit trauma or trouble or trial in my life, there is a higher being, there's a God that actually loves me, cares about me and wants to connect with me and talk with me and pray with me. You're saying that's, that actually exists and people that go on that journey and actually experience that is true. It's a whole transformation process. There's not enough principles or teachings or best-selling books that can actually fill the void of what you feel at the end of the day when you put your head on that pillow the same way that message and that fundamental truth can actually fill that void, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so it's really the revelation and the acceptance of that story and that reality that makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, I think that's such a powerful message, Benz, that you shared. I think our listeners, I encourage you to listen to that again and again, <laughs> see how it makes you feel. I think for me, myself as a founder, it's a lot of times it's been pretty difficult. And the founders who I know who have spirituality, they actually say, there's a reason for the suffering, for their suffering. And they actually learn so much from the process. They try to enjoy that process. And I think it's a powerful thing. I think it's like an innate thing that beckons specifically entrepreneurs and creators and founders. Because if you actually understand the process of creation and you're a builder, you're a founder, you're an entrepreneur, you're so intimate with that process of creation. What is actually so exciting is to subscribe to the fact that and submit to the fact that somebody created us. There's really some main popular streams of ideologies that you can subscribe to. And there's not one where you can definitively say, hey, I have all the facts where I'm going to intellectually convince you that this is true or else everybody would just believe the same mm -hmm. intellectual truth. But some of the lines of thought is that either this is all random and we're just a bunch of randomness or there was a specific intention and a design and purpose for our creation and for our life. And as an entrepreneur and as a creator myself, like I'm so excited to be able to believe that somebody created me and had an intention for me and had a purpose built design for me. Because that means that I can wake up in the morning with a pep in my step. I can wake up in the morning feeling like, okay, this is not just a throwaway random day that it doesn't actually matter what I do because the universe is just a bunch of randomness, but actually what I do today can matter in eternity, can matter in the history of time, can matter to somebody that is actually looking down 
that created me, that loves me so much, that wants to see me fulfill the purpose that I have for my life. For me, let's say I'm wrong. I guess I'd rather believe that (laughs) (laughs) than the the alternative. Yeah, I think that makes your day and makes your life a lot easier and better, make your mood a lot better as well, if you believe in what you believe. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I think next topic I want to talk about, Vance, is related. It's burnout. I think right now we're in a rather difficult time for founders, for builders in general, because of what's been happening with the economy. Also, it's the summer, so more people are experiencing burnouts. I have friends experiencing burnouts every day. So I think, Vance, I think by chat, us chatting previously, I think you have done a great job of finding joy while starting the startup and also finding all fun activities to do off work. I'm sure you as a founder also experienced burnout, but what is your process of navigating that and how do you find joy in work and after work? Yeah, you have to understand yourself, right? You got to understand what gives you energy. I think a lot of times where burnout can come from is that people that got into the game of entrepreneurship got into it for the wrong motivations and the wrong reasons. They got into it because they wanted to be Forbes 30 under 30. They wanted to see themselves on the cover of a magazine or an article. They wanted to be on TechCrunch. Basically, what they subscribe to is all the sexy parts, the seemingly sexy parts of a startup journey and the entrepreneurial process, right? The reality is that like 99.9% of the time, that's not what you experience (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. as a startup founder. And so if that's what you were motivated by and you never get the satisfaction of that dopamine hit, then you're going to be discouraged. If you are centering your reason for starting a company on some of these vanity metrics, then not hitting those vanity metrics are the very reason that you're going to give up or you're going to feel burnt out. But if you actually got into it because you genuinely enjoy the sector and the problem that you're tackling, you like are just so motivated by the problem. For me, it's just so silly that it's so hard for somebody to give stock or crypto or a used car. Like they want to give it. Like literally people have told me, take my BMW. It's like, it's used. I think it's still on Kelly Blue Book where $10,000. I just bought a new car for my wife. Literally somebody told me this today. And there's no platform that I can just click a button and somebody picks up the car, sells it and gives the proceeds to my church or private school or nonprofit or alma mater. If there was like a button I could just click and that that would happen, then I would give. I would literally just give it, right? So it just seems so stupid to me. That doesn't exist. But because I'm passionate and I think that's stupid and I'm like so intimate with the problem, I get energized when I create a solution that's starting to alleviate that problem and that pain point. I get so, and it like, it's long hours, right? Like I'm working around the clock. I have four kids, like it's unreasonable, but those hours that, so there's like a difference between bad exhausted and good exhausted. Okay. You know what I mean? The bad exhausted is like burnout is I give up. I don't want to do this anymore. The good exhausted is whoa, like I'm literally physically, mentally, emotionally tired right now and I need a nap. But how awesome was that? <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> like that sensation where you're like, where you're like, Oh man, there's nothing else I'd rather do. And so some people get that through fitness. Some people get that through playing sports. Some people get that through video games. Some people get that through community and being around people. I get that through business. Yeah. Like literally it's energizing to me. And so that that's why I feel like you have to understand yourself and what really truly fills up your cup. And people get burnt out because they're not filling up their cup. They don't know what fills up their cup. 
I think you're absolutely right, Vance. I think that's also what's wrong if you made today about the tech industry, or at least for the past past 10 years, the bull run, right? We have so many founders where we can call them, like people call them tourism founders, are here to yeah. make a quick buck, raise a few founding rounds and just square off. There's so many things happening that up until, I guess, this year. Like, what do you think the next couple months or next year will be? Would it be like founders like yourself who are truly passionate about a product problem and can truly grind it, that's going to stay? Or what do you think the tech industry is going to be like? For yeah, it's interesting. I think short-term predictions is that it's going to be a lot harder for startups to recruit because there's a lot more allure right now for safety and security in companies like big tech. I think in this bull run where startups were getting crazy markups, evalu valuations, and paper money seemed to be just going up and up, there was this kind of allure that, oh, wow, startups are paying almost as much as big tech. And there's like bigger asymmetric upside. If I join this up, this startup, let me leave the security of my job because this doesn't feel as risky maybe as it has historically. So that's, I think, the sensation that was happening in the peak of the bull run. But the reality is because startups are now not able to fundraise like they were before, are not getting markups like they were before, don't have as much easy access to capital as they were before. So they have to be more mindful of the salaries that they provide. Founders of startups have to be better than ever at articulating their mission and their vision. And that be the main selling point because I don't think startups are gonna win on compensation and they're definitely not gonna win on safety and security. And so I think that's a mandate of startups that maybe didn't fully understand that their mission and vision needs to be at the forefront of their sales pitch to refresh themselves on, okay, at the end of the day, if we're going to get the right people and if we're going to actually be able to pull people away from opportunity costs at other companies, I'm going to have to get really good at genuinely believing in myself <laughs> and then articulating it to the next influx of talent that we need. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned about a talent problem. I think that's the first time I heard it. And it's so true that what's been happening it's only been a few weeks and I think we're so many things changing and I'm glad Vance that you mentioned about talent and how startups can win in a talent game against the big tech. Yep. So I do want to talk to the next topic about starting a company when there might not be, when it's not a safe route, so to speak. So I think like Vance, like right now in 2022, we're potentially in another economic downturn. It is bad for the economy, but I think also like the best companies gets created during economic hard times. So I think there's there are probably so many people thinking about starting their own companies at this very moment. For you, I think that you had a career, you have a career before starting Overflow and maybe it's pretty quote unquote safe. Before you started, decided to be on Overflow full-time, take such a big risk. What was the thinking process behind that? And do you, or were you re, like having any quote unquote resistance from people around you about starting your own I have a really supportive community around me. So I've been in a very fortunate position where most of the people in my world that I've kind of been invited in have been net positive on these moves and have seen and have called the potential out in me and given me the confidence to actually make those steps and those leaps. I would say that the biggest critic, and this is probably true for most people, is yourself, is the inner voice saying that you're not good enough, you don't got what it takes, why would you put your family in that risky situation? And what can happen is that self-doubt can turn into fear. Here's the thing. When you understand that whether you work for Facebook or whether you're going to start a company, security, this like concept of security is just a farce. 
Anyways, yeah, probably there's some things that are more secure than others, but at the end of the day, the spectrum of safety and security, we don't fully know. Life is unpredictable. The most secure thing that you can do is actually align yourself to something that you're going to be so passionate about, that you'll put extra hours in for, that you can be one of one at, that you can be best in the world at, and at the end of the day, opportunities will follow that energy and that passion, right? Yes, there are things of being a good, wise steward and understanding basic things about markets and understanding if something is going to be able to sustain you and make you money and things like that. And I'm not advocating for just leaving something and taking a risk. I think people can moonlight and mm -hmm. validate ideas while still having a job. That has never been more possible in today's world. But at the end of the day, when you're thinking about something in terms of the next thing, if you're basing it off of this concept of safety and security, you're really basing your decision based on fear. And anything based on fear is probably not the optimal decision. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And I think Vance, you mentioned you're also like an immigrant, second generation immigrant, if I'm correct. And so many great companies got created by immigrants and second generation immigrants. So, but I think what people don't understand is how difficult it is when you are a second generation or first generation immigrant to start something, because for you, I'm assuming your parents work super hard in order to support you and you have to make that decision of I'm going to do my own thing. What was that like? And how's your parents been supportive of your decision? Yeah, that's kind of the uh, difficult part, right? Because like I said earlier, as a first generation immigrant, you want to, because your parents sacrifice so much. You want to, as soon as possible, buy them the house, yep. buy them the car. And to be honest, if you're trying to maximize your earning potential, you should just actually just join big tech and stay there for 10 years and work <laughs> your way up. Because if you were at Apple, Facebook, Google, like 10, 20 years ago, you could buy your parents a house <laughs> right now <laughs> if you just kept working your way up. You know what I mean? These are now trillion dollar companies and they were trillion dollar companies like 10, 20 years ago. So that's like the best way, surefire way to become wealthy, right? Is to align yourselves with honestly big tech because they just consume so much of the value of the market. And if you are a good employee and you provide value and you work hard and you work your way up in those companies, that is your most surefire way at earning potential. And so that's the calculus is that's hard, right? Cause I'm mm -hmm. taking, cause I literally were at, I was at Google and I could have mm -hmm. taken that path mm -hmm. and it'll probably be more of a sure thing in terms of the potential earning power that I had. And so the calculus that I had to do is, am I willing to bet on myself? Right. And so my thing is, what can I do that has asymmetric risk? So this is the calculus. Okay, let me venture out and do my own thing. What's the worst that could happen? It fails. Mm -hmm. Okay, then I just get a job back at Google. But what's the best thing that can happen? That this actually becomes a billion dollar company because of a life-changing event, not just for me, but for generations to come. And that's going to actually bless my parents. And, and so when you do that calculus and you start realizing, oh, it's just actually about believing in yourself to make that asymmetric bet and to swing for the fences. And at the end of the day, if it doesn't work out, you have confidence that you can get back to the market and get a job. It actually takes the edge off what seems to be like a very big faith step. 
is actually a more calculated move. And I think that's very informative about that's what you said about trying to buy your mom a house. I think I've thought about it. Same thing, <laughs> buying parents a house. It's all about immigrants. Do you feel like it's harder for immigrants to start a company as opposed to like non-immigrants? Do you think they face more challenges or what, what's your take in general for a startup? I would be interested to see the stats. I would bet that there's a higher success rate for unicorn companies when founded and operated and led by an immigrant. I don't know. That's just my guess. I could be completely wrong, but why I'm guessing that and why would it, I would bet on that without understanding the actual st statistic is because knowing how much I know about the founder journey now, it's really about grit Great. at the end of the day. Like you have to be so resilient, so resourceful and so gritty that being exposed to hardship in your life is actually a net positive for needing the tools or having the tools that you need to be successful in this game. In terms of like access to funding and things like that, I would say it's like way harder for minority communities, immigrant communities, people not from specific universities or regions or certain communities to get funding. That's a very specific thing. I do feel like there's still kind of a disadvantage. In saying that, I think that you can use any potential disadvantage to your narrative to leverage it as an advantage. So it's really mm -hmm. just like a matter of perspective and how you frame it. But I do think that you have to be a lot more intentional, a lot more strategic, specifically with fundraising. If you don't have naturally built in Stanford network or naturally built in network through your parents and things like that in terms of the capital markets. And I, I'm really like your story events is that you are, you're an immigrant, um, or second generation immigrant yourself. And you started this company just about two years ago. You started Overflow just yeah. about two years ago. Yeah. And you never had a founder experience before and yeah. you were able to grow it so fast, grow it from assuming just you and your co-founder, just yourself to now 40 people. What is that journey like in less than two years? Majority of that was also COVID, I'm right. So what was that like? Man, we are a product of the pandemic. The journey's been wild, man. It's been crazy. I think for our business, launching, starting, growing our business through a pandemic, ended up being a blessing in disguise. I do believe that this remote work environment has allowed us to hire talent probably otherwise we wouldn't have, has allowed us to divert resources and maybe something that we would have invested into an office, into other areas of <laughs> personal and professional development invested directly towards the team. And so I'm appreciative of that. In saying that, I'm a big believer that the future is gonna be hybrid. I'm a pastor at a church, so I'm a big believer in real life interactions. And so while I believe remote's going to be continual big part of our business, I want to not just have kind of remote workers, but an HQ with hubs all over the world where people can gather more frequently in person to collaborate, to build, solve problems and innovate together. Because I, I do believe a lot of the innovation can happen in person that otherwise wouldn't have happened in a, a completely remote environment. And so I am bullish on a hybrid future, but, you know, we took what we had in the time and created a company in the pandemic and we made it work for us. That's super amazing. I want to talk more about the topic of revenue since it's getting more and more prevalent in the venture space in a startup world now. Before you come onto the show today, Vance, I didn't know Overflow is SaaS. And now knowing that, I think I can more confidently ask about what's your approach to revenue where you're like very strict about revenue from day one. And do you have a matrix of growing revenue? Because that's becoming so important today. 
Yeah, especially B2B SaaS, it's a playbook, right? We don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are certain metrics that lead towards maximizing your chances to be a unicorn and to mm -hmm. be a very important brand, at the very least to be attractive for more capital and investment. That playbook is very clear. So if you don't know that playbook and you're a B2B SaaS founder or you want to, it's 3X ARR year over year, <laughs> then 3X it again the next year, <laughs> and then 2X it, and then 2X it, and then 2X it. So if you do the math on that, you essentially become a billion dollar company because you get to $100 million ARR imputing a 10X multiple, which is the normalized average in the past decade we've seen from B2B SaaS you become a unicorn, a billion dollar brand, right? So revenue has always been on our minds since day one. It's something that we've been focused on and continue to focus on within our company. The other main metric for our business is GMV. So we're a payments platform at the end of the day, we're a FinTech platform. And so how much total donation value is actually pumping through our platform is also important on the level of ARR as well. So both of those two metrics, annual recurring revenue, so how many subscriptions and average order values in combination with the actual donations we're facilitating and the processing fees that we're taking from that are the main metrics that we measure at Overflow since the beginning until... That's super interesting. And I just wanted to squeeze one more question in advance <laughs> because I really yeah, enjoyed yeah, the yeah. conversation. I wanted to ask more about hiring and the team because I think like yourself coming from a background of believing spirituality, and I think that impacts a lot of things. Like when you don't believe in things, you might hire... For example, like Uber, when they were hiring people, mm. it was a very, I guess, negative experience for yeah. them. And I think for you, I'm assuming you have a playbook of how you want to hire and how you had hired. So can you share us a little bit more about that playbook and who you look for? What qualities do you look for, Vance? Yeah, so we're driven off of our values. An example of our value is fight to pay the bill. This concept where, you know, when I grew up seeing my uncles, kind of at an Asian restaurant, trying to be ninjas and fight to pay the bill and cover the table <laughs> was very inspiring to me. Like those type of things in life show that generosity is inspiring. And so we've coined that as a value within the company is like, hey, if you are considered a flow fam, if you're part of the overflow staff, you're going to exude that value of fighting to pay the bill. So when we have like company offsites and retreats, you see people all the time, like trying to buy each other coffee or try to spot each other a meal and things like that because it's part of our culture. And so that's what we try to evaluate in the interview process. If they have that culture, if they have those values that are aligned to our values and saying that if they make it all the way to the final stage and they have an interview with me, I'm not trying to convince them to work for overflow anymore. I'm actually trying to convince them not to work for overflow anymore. <laughs> I give what's called the anti-sell. So we have a bunch of anti-sell pillars that we pitch to people saying, Hey, if you're looking for a nine to five, you really shouldn't work at Overflow. If you don't want to work for a CEO that is a Christian and that has faith in his life and that might reference the Bible from time to time, then you shouldn't work at Overflow. So, so the goal is that I'm just as upfront as possible so that if after that anti-sell, they still want to join the company, then it confirms that, okay, they really want to be at the company and we've been transparent on probably what it's going to be like if they join the company. Oh, wow. The anti-sell, that's the first time I've heard of the <laughs> anti-sell. I thank you so much for, for bringing that up. And I think I really should do that as well myself, because the, at the end of the day is about the culture fit, whether the person fits the culture and the culture in many ways is the founder. The culture is created by the founder. So I, 
I personally think that's like very important. So Vance, I do want to ask more about like your vision for Overflow because it's only been two years since you guys started and you have accomplished a lot. I think the revenue multiples, like you said, has been growing a lot. You've signed up more and more companies, customers. So what is it like for the next three to five years, in your opinion? Yeah, great question. So like I said earlier, we're building the Amazon for giving. So we want to be as iconic of a brand as Amazon, the same way that literally if you buy something online, you're probably going to Amazon first. When you think about giving online, you're going to think about overflow first. And the reason why is because through overflow, you could give anything to any organization, anywhere in the world, at any time, right? If you want to give <laughs> your Jordan sneakers, um, you thought you were going to put it on StockX or Goat, but actually you kind of feel like you want to give it and you don't care about making money off of it, you can give it through Overflow. If you want to give your used car that you're not using anymore, because through the pandemic, you moved to a city where you just take the subway anyway, you can give it through Overflow. If you want to give this wine collectible that had been handed down to you from your grandparents, you don't really have need for it because you're not really a wine connoisseur and you rather have it go to a cause that you really care about, you can give it through Overflow. Literally anything that you want to give, you'll be able to give through Overflow. And so in the next 10 years, what we want to do today, $450 billion is given every single year, nonprofits, churches, and charities. We want to see that number go from 450 billion to a trillion. I see. Apple became one of the first trillion dollar companies. That's exciting. What if we became one of the first companies to facilitate a trillion dollars? That'd exactly. be really, uh, facilitate a trillion dollars in giving. That'd be really exciting. Not only that we made that much impact in the world, because it's going towards causes to fix things like climate change or education or social injustice or whatever it might be. But a company that helped facilitate a trillion dollars is also probably a very valuable company. <laughs> and everybody working for it is probably doing well. And so that's, that's the vision behind Overflow. Yeah, and I think you inspire many of my giving ideas now. I, mean, I have many causes I wanted to contribute. I have so many things I just throw away or just sell in the marketplace. Now I really wanted to be able to use Overflow soon for anything. I really love your vision. I think in our world today, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, there's so many social injustices happen. There's so many things that needs to be like improved. And why GoFundMe and all the other platforms are becoming popular is that people at the end of the day believe in giving. And I think what you're building is going to be super successful because how you enable everyone to give in other ways. So thank you so much, Vance, for coming to thank the show you. today. Thank you so much for giving us all the advice. And thank you for bringing your passion out throughout your company and throughout this episode. Really appreciate it and hope to see you again soon, Vance. Builders Build, a Bluemex podcast, is hosted by George Poo and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. For more Builders Build content, subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bluemex.io to join us on Discord.